0: Parents, if you haven't yet checked them in, please make sure to go with them and check them in at the table, and then make sure that you use that sticker to pick them up, whether in the nursery or uh, downstairs, just to make sure that we get the right child in the right hands after service. So please make sure that you take care of that. Um, If you do have your Bible and you want to turn into Luke chapter 10, that's where we're going to start. And as I promised last week, um, I'm going to share with you a message, I think today called steer clear of doo-doo steer clear of doo-doo and so that's an important message especially uh, as you go to the state fair and walk around in fact just yesterday as we were walking around with micaiah and uh, i was like oh watch out for the doo-doo oh watch out and uh, that's exactly not what we're going to talk about today but uh, i'm going to actually begin to share a message by Jeff Dio. Jeff Dio wrote a book, um, in fact it's not even out in the market yet. This is a pre-released copy and uh, he was sharing on Facebook some quotes from his book. If you don't know who Jeff Dio is, he's a national uh, worship leader songwriter. In fact, he led worship at our national youth convention um, down in uh, Texas just a few weeks ago, months ago. He was in a band called Sonic Flood back in the 90s. So if you're a big, like, uh, into the retro praise movement back then... Um, And he's pretty famous, and so I know him because I met him. He's now a professor at North Central University, and so when we were there to take Kedrick, uh, I had dinner with him, and he's just a regular guy, Um, and he's really passionate about God. And so he was talking about this book, and I said, uh, Jeff, I sent him a Facebook message. For all of you that think Facebook is evil, it's not. It can be used for evil. It can be used for good. Um, I said, where could I get a copy of that because I really want to read it? And he sent me a link, said, hey, if you pay for it here, I'll send you one. And uh, so he sent it to me. And I spent about three weeks in chapters one and two. And um, I could not go on. And I just I started sending messages back and forth to him and about how the message he shares in this book is cha- literally changing uh, my life completely. The way I think, the way I process things, things that I've always known to be true. I mean, he'll talk about scripture passages, and I don't believe him. And then I'll wait till I'm done with that chapter and I'll actually go to the Bible and I'll find out he was right. And I was reading it wrong all along. And uh, so it's, it, it's a profound message called Awakening Pure Worship. And uh, so I asked him, I said, dude, I just want to preach some of your message in our church in the months of September. Because we've got a couple weeks in between series. Can I do it? And he, his reply back to me was, yep, yeah, you have absolutely my permission to do it. But you know what would be better is if I came and preached one for you. Okay, Facebook hasn't told you where I'm from, and so, yeah, um, and so, but, uh, you know, a, a national person has, you know, they, they have a ministry that they've got to do, and so they've got a contract that you sign and all kinds of stuff, so I'm like, what would it take to bring you to here on South Dakota, and he told me, and I kind of laughed, and, uh, and I told him, I can't do it, but here's what I can do. And if you'll come for that, and we'll even take a love offering that day. If you'll come, um, we'd love to have you. But if not, no hard feelings. You know, I, I, don't, I, I let you walk away, and I'll preach the messages. And he said, let's do it. So on September 16th, he will be here on a Sunday morning. And I encourage you, if you know people in the younger generation. I encourage you to invite them Unchurch people, people away from the Lord, people that know Jeff Dio. Uh, I encourage you to invite them, to bring them. And uh, I'm going to share today just kind of a foundational part of that book, that message that he shares, and then he's going to share um, the rest of it as he comes on that Sunday morning. And, um, you know, it's just, it's amazing how God has ordered our steps, how he does order our steps, and he has ordered my steps in such a way, and I, I mean, I've written to him probably a half dozen times, um, how God has just worked in my life through this message, and, um, he, you know, he, he's shared back with me, um, you know, um, He just said, you know, thank or praise God for how he's using this message to open up an awakening in your heart. This is absolutely what I hoped when I wrote the book, and uh, so thank God for that. And I know he was saying thank God for that, but the way I read it, instantly I was like, you know what? Yes, thank you, God, for finally opening my eyes to things that have been there all along that maybe I haven't seen. And uh, my prayer as I've been preparing for this day is that he does that same thing to you. Um, Jeff grew up in a traditional background type of church. He did not grow up in a charismatic Pentecostal area. So for him, worship was sing some songs and sit down. It was very meditative. And so now when he leads worship, he is very expressive. And uh, people will will go up to him, just like I said about Tony today, and say, well, you know, that's just who you are. And uh, he tells you in the book, he shares his story, his testimony. It is not who he is. He says, it's not a part of my personal character. It's a part of my new creation in Christ Type of character. And so he's cultivated a heart of worship. And as I was reading this book, one of the people that came to mind is a guy by the name of Brother Lawrence. And I don't know if you know the name Brother Lawrence. He was a monk that lived in the 16th century. And I read a book, uh, which is a collection of his writing, years ago. And uh, he was a soldier in an army. And as he was walking by a tree one day in the winter, it was dead. But he was thinking about how it looked dead. But in the spring, it was going to come back to life. And the Holy Spirit spoke to him through that tree and talked about his life and how God wanted to bring new life. And so he went and joined a monastery thinking, you know, I want to give everything to God and I want to surrender all of my life to him and I want to pray and meditate on the scriptures and I want to know God the best I could know him. And so uh, being a monk was the best way. But the crazy thing about Brother Lawrence is he didn't really like the times where they separated themselves for prayer or fasting or to really seek the Lord. Because he felt like that wasn't what the scripture teaches. It wasn't that he didn't like them. But what he wanted was to practice the presence of God. That's the title of the book. All the time. So whether he was doing dishes. Or whether he was doing laundry in the monastery. Or whether he was praying and seeking God. He wanted to live the exact same way. And you know, our thoughts should be exactly the same when we're walking down the fairgrounds. As when we're worshiping in this room. They should be, I mean, our thoughts should be so centered on God and who he is. We tend to want to separate our lives into sacred and secular. There is no such dichotomy in the scripture. You will not find it. And the reason that many of us have a hard time sharing our faith is because we've separated our lives. We, we don't practice or live in the presence of God daily. And um, Brother Lawrence was probably the closest thing to Enoch that we have ever seen in our generation. And that's kind of this message of awakening pure worship about worshiping God fully. And I know that through the years, uh, we tended to to think of worship as the song portion of a service. But now I know that through um, different... Conversations that we've had and different awakenings we now understand that worship is not just the song portion that worship is giving everything to God we know that Romans 12 says that everything in our lives is you know we give ourselves fully to God that's our spiritual act of worship and we know that Colossians 3 says everything we do we do it for the glory of God and so when we're singing and dancing and we're lifting our hands and we're doing that kind of stuff yep that is worship if you're teaching in a Public school, that's worship. When you're landscaping your yard, that's worship. When you're coaching, when you're farming, when you're working with numbers in a bank, it's worship. And that's what it is. When we do these things in our lives for the purpose of glorifying God, they're worship to him. And so anytime we exalt him, it's worship. When we love our spouse, when we show compassion, when we help our neighbor mow their lawn or we blow, snow blow their driveway, that is worship. But here's the thing. Just because we do not work unto God does not mean it is not worship. I'm going to repeat that. Just because we don't do our work unto God does not mean it ceases to be worshipped. It just ceases to be worshipped to God. We are still worshipping. We're just not worshipping Him. So we need to take take every thought captive we need to understand every waking moment of our lives provides an opportunity to worship god we need to realize it we need to be aware of it and we need to walk in it and that kind of leads us to our do do problem our culture tends to identify ourselves and other people by what they do we are huge into labels It starts at a very young age with our children when we say, what do you want to be when you grow up? And what we're really asking them is, what do you want to do? And we're equating what we do with who we are. And we have become incredibly consumed with doing in our culture. And as a result of that, we've missed our purpose altogether. We risk losing our being when we try to prove our worth in doing. You have to understand, in our lives, there is a God-given drive within us as human beings. We have a drive to accomplish things. We have a drive to succeed, to be significant, to be noticed, to be discovered. And it's not that God doesn't want that for us. He's put it in us. Be fruitful and multiply subdue the earth. It's in us because of God. He wants us to do great things for him. He wants us to overcome. He wants us to stand strong. He wants us to help the helpless. He wants us to reach the lost. He wants us to give to the poor. He wants us to accomplish impossible things. He wants us to worship him through our doing. The problem is we go at it backwards. We become so busy chasing our accomplishments that we overlook the source the one whom our good deeds actually originate from. I know I told you to go to Luke 10. I'm, I've come in there. I got to lay a foundation first. I don't know what is going on today with the screen, but uh, I want Ephesians chapter two, verse 10 up there now. Um, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to close out my app and just reopen it because I feel like it's kind of a little bit demon possessed, and we'll just trust that rebooting. So sometimes we all need a reboot. Amen. And so, um, yeah, like, there we go. Hold on. Let's see if we can make it happen now. Boom. See, I'm back. Okay. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do good things that he planned for us long ago. I want you to look at this. God has planned good deeds long ago for us to do, but the way to get us to do them was he had to recreate us anew in Christ Jesus. See, we mistakenly in our culture believe that we become someone great because we do something great, and that's not kingdom theology. See, kingdom theology is God has planned for us to do great things out of the greatness of That he has actually put within us. Okay, and this really means everything. Our greatness in Christ is not born out of the great things we have done. The great things we have done are born out of our greatness in Christ. Our doing must flow out of a life that is lived in God. And this is not just semantics. This is not just, well, you know, you say potato, I say potato. That's not what we're talking this is This is literally a shift in how we think and process that has to take place. In the book of Hosea, God says, oh, that we might know the Lord. This is the prophecy of Hosea. Let us press on to know him. He will respond to us as surely as the arrival of the dawn or the coming of rains in early spring. I want to show love and not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. Okay, what you've got to understand is this is written in the Old Covenant. So it's not like sacrifices were just, you know, kind of, if you want to do them, do them. These were essential. These were actually the hallmark of their relationship with God. And what God is saying is, I don't want your sacrifices, I want you. (laughs) Do not miss this. The sacrifices were God's way of trying to get people to see how much they needed him. They weren't about the sacrifices, but people just got so used to doing the sacrifices that they just did the sacrifices and they weren't doing them with their whole heart. In fact, they found ways to try to get around it and they were offering lesser animals than God demanded because they didn't want to offer their best because they didn't in reality trust that if I give God my best, that he won't give back to me. And that's where in Malachi, he says, test me in this. See if I am not a good father. See if I am not who I said I was. You can trust me. And if he would say that in the old covenant, how much more for you and I does he want us? He doesn't want you to read your Bible every day. He doesn't want you to go to church every Sunday. He doesn't want you to be a morally good person. He wants you. And we've made it about what we do and not about our commitment, connection to him. Paul says everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I need to become one with him. I want to know him. Jeremiah 29, I, if you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. I will be found by you, says the Lord. These scriptures like this are littered Throughout the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, you will find them. And yet we miss it. You can go to church every week. You can read your Bible every day. You can have a diligent prayer life and never be seeking God. You can be morally good. You can have all of the right trappings in your life. And never really be having a heart after Him. You can lift your hands every Sunday. You can tithe and give. your. You can burn your body for the poor. I, don't, I, don't, I know that's not what Paul said, but, you know, you get what I mean. Jeff, in his book, writes it this way. If you seek God first, you will truly begin to know him. If you know him, you will truly begin to become like him. Become more like your father in heaven, and out will flow God-designed, God-sanctioned, God-empowered works that bring glory to the king and touch the earth. Our doing has to flow out of our being. When we start seeking Him first, truly seeking Him first, heavenly deeds will follow. They will just follow. It will be the byproduct. When we pursue doing as our priority, we labor in vain. Hear that. When we pursue doing as our priority, we labor in vain. Because without Him, we can do nothing. Without Him, we find ourselves all alone striving to do, 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 and then we end up in doo-doo. And that's literally what, what happens to us. There is no joy. There is no peace. The story of the prodigal son from Luke chapter 15 shows the result of the life of doo-doo. The elder brother stayed at home and I slaved for you. His identity was so wrapped up, not in his relationship with the Father, but in what he did for the Father. And that is an alarm that Jesus is blaring out in Luke chapter 15. The most important thing for you and I is to walk and talk with God in a deep personal relationship for all of eternity. That's what Adam and Eve did. That is the total restoration of God's original design. His dream is for his people to walk in that relationship. So when we say restoration, we're bringing people back into the relationship with the Father that they were created for. Now in Luke chapter 10, Jesus and his disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem. They came to a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he taught. But Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work. Tell her to come and help me. But the Lord said to her, My dear Martha, you are worried and upset over all these details. There is only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken away from her. I know you've heard this story before. I know that your personality either sides with Mary or Martha, and I know you've reasoned in your mind why that's okay. But what Jesus is trying to teach us here is it's not really about your personality. There's something that he's highlighting that he wants us to see. And what I believe he wants us to see is when given a choice between working our to-do list and sitting at the feet of Jesus our priority must always be sitting at the feet of Jesus. Now, I understand there are chores that need to be done, which is exactly what Brother Lawrence was after. How can my folding of laundry, washing of dishes, actually keep me in tune with him? And how can it be sitting at his feet even while I'm working? And I believe it is possible. I do not believe Jesus is condemning work. I believe Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, if you don't work, you don't eat. But what Jesus is trying to help us do is to prioritize. When we are consumed with work or really with anything, more than we're consumed with him, things will always be out of balance. Always. And the reason that he says this is because he wants us to safeguard ourselves, and he wants us to keep from looking to anything else besides fellowship with him for fulfillment in life. What Martha is doing is getting her identity from the meal she's preparing, not from her relationship with the Father. Work has to be the root, excuse me, the fruit of our relationship with God, not the root. Woo, heaven help us. Hopefully you didn't just wake up for that moment. Work has to be the fruit of our relationship with God, not the root. Martha, it says, was distracted by many things. She was too distracted to notice that Jesus was even in the room teaching. Have you ever been there? so distracted by what is supposed to happen that you completely miss him. I get there a lot, because I know what's supposed to happen. And when things don't happen the way they're supposed to happen, I have to tell myself it's, it's okay. And I have to make sure I don't get lost in the now when things aren't happening the way they're supposed to happen. Why is Martha so upset right here? She's afraid. She's afraid. I mean, she's afraid the meal's not going to be ready. She's afraid that she's going to look bad. She's afraid. I mean, if I just stop working and I sit here by Mary, who's going to prepare the food? I mean, she's talking to the guy that took a few loaves of bread and a couple fish and fed 5,000 people. Those aren't just nice stories for us to hear and read about. They're supposed to change the way that we listen and think and process and live. What would happen if we all just forgot about the feast and sat at the feet of Jesus? We might not eat, or we might see a miracle, but here's what I do know. The world will not stop spinning. And yet you and I scurry around all the time as if the fate of the earth is hanging in the balance and we're the only ones on this planet that can keep the scales from tipping one way or the other. And that's how many of us live our lives. And we're missing God all around us because we're so concerned about details. Now there's nothing wrong with working hard at your job. In fact, Colossians 3.17 says, do everything you do to the glory of God. There's nothing worse than someone who claims to be a follower of Christ and is lazy at work. Because that's that's a poor testimony of God. But you should not do it for your boss's approval. You should not do it because of your own identity. I mean, here's the thing. When you do it for the Lord, whether or not your boss recognizes it, honors you or anything, doesn't matter because you're not doing it for him. If you're doing it to get your identity, you're going to become like Martha. And you're going to be looking at all the other employees and wondering why they don't work as hard as you. Or they're making you look bad. You know, I do my part and these people are making me look bad. And then you just all the way home from from work that day to your spouse or at the dinner table. These other people, they don't do their job like me. You're no longer doing it for him. You're doing it for you. How you look. How's it going to look? I mean, do you trust that if you just work hard and you do your best to glorify him? Now, if someone is sabotaging you at work, you can have a conversation with them. In fact, that's what you should do biblically. But we don't like to follow the Bible because that's hard. We'd rather tell our spouse about it and complain in front of our kids about it and wonder why our kids don't grow up following God. Because we model for them, it's okay to live according to your flesh instead of the Bible when it pleases you or suits you. I know, I'll try not to meddle. (laughs) But our goal has to be becoming one with him. And then all of our work should flow out of that. If you remember the book we read, Killing Kryptonite, last spring, remember what the goal of Killing Kryptonite was? Remember this verse? If you love me, you will obey my commandments. And how John Bevere taught us that this verse doesn't mean obey his commandments to prove that you love him, but just start loving him, and out of that relationship will come obedience. I mean, it really does work that way. And yet somewhere along the line, all of us fall into this trap of trying to obey him. But here's the danger. In Matthew chapter 7, many will say, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and drive out demons in your name and perform many miracles in your name? And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. See, they were doing, but they were not becoming. They did not Know him, so they could not become like him. I mean, they could mimic him, and a lot of people go to church every week and we mimic him, but we do not know him. One of my favorite passages of scripture in all of the Bible, it um, has always been, I don't, uh, is Philippians, Philippians chapter 3. P- probably because I feel like the Apostle Paul. I mean, I was I went to Bible college and I used the Bible to beat people up and tell them why they were all wrong and why I was right. Um, Wow, that's so. That's such an identity problem. I mean, I know we all want to accurately handle the Word of God, but whenever you're the only one that can be right, um, yeah, you you don't know who you are in Him. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how else to describe that but I mean I was there thank God I had a Damascus Road encounter at Trinity Bible College thank you Pat Donaldson if you ever watch this for messing up my life Um, (laughs) Philippians chapter 3 Paul says I once thought all these things were valuable what things Uh, being a Jew being from the tribe of Benjamin being studied I studied under Gamal I knew the law I did it all I was righteous, I was everything, I was circumcised, I was everything I could possibly do. If Paul was writing this today, he would say, I went to Sunday school, I went to church all my life, I got baptized, I read my Bible through the year, in a year every day, every year I do that, um, I, do, I bring a tithe every week, I put something in the offering every week, I, I do all these things. Paul says, now I consider all of them worthless. Because of what Christ has done. That does not mean we should not read our Bible and we should not pray and we should not give tithes. And It doesn't mean any of those things. But those things have to flow out of being found in him. Not to get found in him. I'm not a good Christian because I tithe. I tithe because he's remade me to think of him as my sole provider. And he's asked me to give him a tenth so I do it. Because I trust that he's going to do better with 90 than I can do with 100. And so many people that say, well, once we get our finances in order, we'll start tithing, need to come to a revelation of that he's a good father, and if you trust him, he'll take care of it. I mean, it's, it's just backwards when we think, well, I'll just get it, I'll get it to the where, I, where I can be obedient. <laughs> You'll never get it to where you can be obedient. That's why Jesus died. I mean, that's why people are like, well, I'll go to church once I become a better person. <laughs> good luck. I mean, you'll never show up because you can't do it in your own strength. Everything else is worthless, Paul says, when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends upon faith. <laughs> Sorry, I know what's coming. I did get past chapter 2. In fact, I only have two chapters left. I've never read two chapters in a row because I wanted to marinate in my heart. Um, but I read this section of the book that I want to share with you. And uh, I just put it on the screen because he just does it so well. The King James Version uses the word dung instead of garbage in that passage. And while that certainly sounds more revolting, I just can't get a picture out of my head. (laughs) You know, that time I casually strolled through the garage and was viciously punched in the gut by a hideous, rotting stench. You've smelled it. The one where multitudes of maggots are wriggling up and down all through the bottom of your receptacle like warm little contaminated grains of rice. So nasty. Almost like they're crawling all over your body right now. (laughs) Have you ever had to clean that thing? Paul is doing his best to convey the gravity of the situation. Think of it. He actually suggests that compared to knowing Christ, everything else, service, good deeds, offerings, evangelism, church attendance, service to the poor, everything is as repulsive to God as those little maggots are to us. Basically, ministry for God, apart from intimacy with God, is like the rotting stench of the worst garbage dump, outhouse, or barnyard you've ever known. And I read that one night while eating a bowl of cereal before bed, and I just thought, well, that was really profound. Um, And I love that passage of Scripture, and it really kind of was profound. But here's the thing. I went for a run the next morning, and I ran past a dumpster. (laughs) And the minute the smell hit my nostrils, it brought me right back here. And I sent Jeff a message and I said, I have run by so many dumpsters in my life. This is the first time I've ever worshiped at one. My prayer is when you walk around the fairgrounds today, when you pass a, a garbage can and you hit that stench in your nostrils, that all of a sudden you become so overwhelmed about what he's done for you, that you are in right standing with him, not because you're good enough, not because you've done anything, but because of what he did for you. And that your identity gets so fully wrapped up into him that you lose yourself at a dumpster. I just, I pray it for all of you. May you just (laughs) have that same experience. Look at John chapter 17. Jesus prayed this for you and me. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. (laughs) I've misread this all my life. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. May they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. Jesus' prayer for us, what does he pray? Pray, Father, that they will all do ministry like I did. No, he doesn't pray that. I pray that they would all sell their possessions and give it to the poor. Nope, he doesn't pray that. I pray that they would share the gospel to the uttermost. Nope, he doesn't pray that. Look at what he prays. That they would be one. And here... The result of that is so that the world will believe you sent me. So this is what I've always heard. When the church gets unified, when the church becomes one, it will be the miracle the world needs to see that Jesus is sent from God. And I believed it because that's what I thought it said. But read it again. They will be one just as you and I are one. As you are in me and I am in you. May they be in us. Us. Here's the thing, guys. It's impossible for a body of believers to have unity where being one with him is not the priority of our hearts individually. Because when we begin to become one with him, then we become one with another, and then the world sees that he is who he says he is. Heidi Baker says it this way. It's out of this place of intimate worship that the fragrance of his love and his glory flows to the world around me. Lasting fruit comes from no other place. This really is the message of the gospel. Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. Jesus did not ever tell us to go and produce fruit. He said, you just connect yourself to me and you will produce fruit. And we try to produce fruit. You can't produce fruit. I mean, that'd be, "Mm, joy come out of me. I'm trying to produce it. I mean, you can't. You just, you can't produce fruit. You've got to be with him. David says in Psalm 27, David was a man after God's heart way before his time. The one thing I ask of the Lord, the one thing. The thing that I seek most is to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, delighting in his perfections and meditating in his temple. David does not want an apartment in the church building. I mean, David is not saying, hey, pastor, could I just put a little cubicle back there and have a bed? And, you know, I want to live in the church building because this is a building. What David wanted was the presence of God. That's what the, the temple of God represented in the Old Testament. And where is the presence of God today? In us. In us. And it goes everywhere we go. And the problem is we just compartmentalize our lives so that when we're here, we don't access it. When we're at work, we don't access it. And God's like, I never saved you so that you could just come in and out of my presence. I saved you because I wanted to dwell in you. I mean, salvation is not the one thing. Salvation makes the one thing possible. John chapter 14, you've all heard this. I just preached this at a funeral on Wednesday. And uh, I preached it like I've never preached it before. And I've preached, I literally have preached this at at least, at least six funerals. Same passage of scripture. Because it's just a really good one for funerals. Um, Especially when they're believers. And Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. Well, oh, he's the way. He's the door. We know that. What's he the way to? He's not the way to heaven. He's not the way to heaven. He didn't say that. What's he the way to? The Father? No one comes to the He doesn't say no one comes to heaven. He says no one comes to the Father. When can you live right now with experience the Father now? Now? We were made for a relationship with our Father from now through all eternity. Jesus even taught his disciples at the end of this passage, John chapter 16, 14, 15, 16, complete teaching of Jesus right before he's about to die. He says this, at that time, you won't need to ask me for anything. (laughs) When Jesus taught us to pray, how did he teach us? Our Father. And how do we pray? Jesus I mean, please do not get me wrong. I'm not saying we should downplay Jesus. Jesus is the way. He is absolutely worthy because we couldn't come to the Father except through Jesus. But he really never taught us to pray to him. He always deflected to the Father. So I'm not saying it's sinful or wrong or he won't hear you if you do, don't do it this way, but he taught us to pray to the Father. And right here he says, I tell you the truth, you will ask the Father directly. He will grant your requests because you use my name, my authority, You haven't done this before. This is brand new. You get to go right to the Father now. I had to come to represent the Father, to show you what he was like, and you had no access to him, but now you do. But he says, you will, meaning after he dies and comes back to life. And so you're sitting there thinking, well, why does this matter? Does it matter if I really understand who I am in the Father? Absolutely it matters, because our identity has to be in him. When Paul says, I pray that you would be rooted and grounded in his love. This is what he's referring to. And look at Jesus in John chapter 16. End of the passage now. Do you finally believe? But the time is coming. deed, it's here now. When you will be scattered. Each one going his own way. Leaving me alone. I mean, how's this for prophecy? <laughs> Yet I am not alone. Because the Father is with me. I have told you this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I've overcome the world. I've told you this so that you will have peace. You're going to have trials. You're going to have sorrows. But here's the thing. People are going to hurt you. People are going to abandon you. People are going to mistreat you. You're going to have bad things happen to you, but you are not alone. Why? Because you have the Father. You have the Father. He is in you. He's with you. No matter what anyone says about you or thinks about you, your identity is rooted in Him, and you are not alone. You are not alone. Last passage of Scripture. Prophesied in Isaiah chapter 11. In that day, the wolf and the lamb will live together The leopard will lie down with the baby goat, the calf and the yearling will be safe, and the lion and a little child will lead them all, and the cow will graze near the bear, and the cub and the calf will lie down together, and the lion will eat hay like a cow, and the baby will play safely near the hole of a cobra, and a little child will put its hand in a nest of deadly snakes without harm, and nothing will hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for as the waters fill the sea, so the earth will be filled with people who know the Lord." And see, we emphasize the other stuff. You know, we emphasize how great it's going to be when the lion lays down with the lamb and there's no more. I mean, when we emphasize heaven, there'll be no more pain and no more sadness and no more sorrow. Can I tell you what? Anything, emphasize that he's there because that's why there's no more pain because he's there. And if you want to experience less pain, even when you experience physical pain, be where he is. Be one with him. Even in the midst of trouble, you can have peace. How is that possible? Not because he's going to give you peace. He is your peace. He is your peace. Everything you need is found in him. And his wish list is, I want to restore all of creation to the way I I created it. But right here, I want people who know me. And as people who know him begin to rise, God's glory covers the earth. That's prophesied in Isaiah also. The glory of the Lord covers the earth because his people declare his name. Not just with their mouths, but with their lives. I want to I have the worship team come back if they could. I hope, I hope they got my message. As we were singing that song, I don't always look ahead to the schedule. But when we sang that song, I Am Not Alone, I was like... We need to sing that again. I want you, I want you to bow your heads. I want you to close your eyes as they get prepared, and I just want you to process the things that I've shared with you now, and I'm not going to take a long time. I know we're, we're right on 1130, and some of you have places to go, and I want to release you as soon as I can, but here's the thing. Some of you might be in this room today, and you are not in relationship with the Father. But I wanna declare to you that Jesus, by his death and his burial and his resurrection has made it possible for you to be restored into relationship with your father. Jesus is the way for that to happen. And the Bible tells us what we have to do is admit that we've rebelled against God and that we've gone our own way. Even morally good people have rebelled against God in some way, they've called their own shots. And God says, you have to admit that and that you have to believe that Jesus came and he died as a substitute for you because our rebellion demanded that we die and Jesus paid that for us. Then he says, you need to confess it or receive Jesus as your savior, meaning that his work, his death alone and nothing you can do will ever add to it, saves you. But you also need to confess him as Lord, receive him as Lord, meaning you're gonna stop rebelling and start trusting. And here's what that means. This is where we get into problems. That means that from this moment on, nothing I do changes or adds or subtracts to salvation. It's all through Christ. It doesn't mean I can just willingly choose to go my own way because I've agreed he's a good father and what he's commanded in his word is good and I'm going to trust him and I'm going to do that but I don't have to be condemned or feel guilty when I don't do it exactly right or if I make a mistake or fail because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and sometimes people get nervous and they think well then people are just going to live however and they're going to but that's why Paul warns don't turn the grace of God into a license to do whatever you want You still got to do what He says. And He doesn't say it to try to be a control freak and control you because He's created you and He knows how you're best fitted to work. So that's why we surrender to Him as Savior and Lord. But if you're in this room and you have never done that, you've never admitted that you've rebelled against God, believed in Jesus as as a substitute for your death, for, for your punishment, and never received Him as Savior and Lord, do you just slip up your hand if that's something you want to do today and say I want to do that. I've never done that. I want to do that today. I want to I want to take those steps. Just slip up your hand and put it right back down. Not going to embarrass you, not going to call you out. I just want to know that that's something a decision you're making today. Anyone in the room? I'm going to assume that everyone in the room then has done that. But here's what I'm gonna ask. Maybe you're in this room and you're a church-going, Bible-reading, morally good person, but yet you've not been in relationship with your Father. Maybe your identity has been wrapped up in your doing and has caused a lot of frustration for you. And the way you see it is how you think about, talk about and act upon sinners in the world, people who thumb their nose at God. I mean, is your thought process, why don't they just get saved? I did it. Why can't they do it? Do you find yourself frustrated that people don't do it like you do it? Is your identity kind of wrapped up in what you do and not who you are in Him? And today, I want to invite you to come and experience the Father fresh and new. I'm not going to get into the semantics of whether you're you're saved or not saved. I don't care. If you're not in full relationship with the Father the way the Word described it today, and you want that, I'm going to ask you to do something pretty brave, and I'm going to ask you to raise your hand and say, I want to come to the Father through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and I've recognized I've found my identity. I've found everything about, I've just gotten wrapped up in doing. And today I wanna become his child, fresh and new. If that's you, would you just slip up your hand and say, that's me, I wanna make that change today. Anyone else, anyone else, anyone else? I no longer wanna make it about doing. You can put your hands down, thank you, thank you. I wanna make it about who I am in him. I want to invite you to stand with me. The worship team is just going to lead us in this closing song and I want to invite the prayer team to come and meet me here in the front. And if you want someone tangibly to pray with you, we're here for you. As we sing this song, if you want to come to the front and you want to maybe just find a place to kneel on your own, you're more than welcome to do that. If you want to come to the front and you want someone to pray with you, we're going to make ourselves available to pray with you. And so we're here for you in this moment. But let's just close this service today by making this declaration one more time, that we are not alone, that he is with us. And I just encourage you, come to the Father today. Literally come to the Father. Today, in a fresh way. When I walk through.